I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Hi, this is Dale Borglum, Ramdev, from the Healing at the Edge channel of the Be Here Now Network. And today I'm going to be talking with my dear friend Melanie Bien, who works for the San Francisco Homeless Outreach Team. Melanie has been coming to Healing at the Edge groups that I facilitate here in the Bay Area for a few years. And I met her shortly after the death of her mother when she came to a retreat that I led. Uh, And I've kind of been in touch with her during working as a social worker at San Francisco General Hospital which was really very challenging. In fact, I think one time you said that you were the only social worker there on a weekend when there were how many patients that you were responsible for? The whole hospital. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how many there are, 300, 400. One social worker for 400 people. So now you have the much easier task, I'm saying kind of sarcastically, (laughs) of there's six or 7,000 homeless people in San Francisco and you have a team of... 30 or 40 people or something like yeah, that? Yeah, 32 outreach workers. 32 outreach workers. So maybe you could tell us not so much the details about what kind of teams you have and stuff, but more what is it like for you to be in, in one sense, something that's really an impossible situation? 
Mm-hmm. And in another sense, it's a, a incredible opportunity for looking at your own edges about uh, powerlessness and how much can I help and your own stress level and and seeing the, the, the depth of human suffering in ways that at times there's very little you can do about it. So, uh, I mean, I've seen you go through a lot of changes in the last few years. Maybe you could tell us a little about that. Well, when I met you, I was the palliative care social worker at San Francisco General. There's one palliative care social worker for the whole hospital, and that was what I was doing is when I first met you. When my mom passed away, it was very difficult for me to do that work, and I chose to go deeper into that work with you to see how that life-changing event was impacting my work with the, with the patients over at San Francisco General. It was an amazing job, but really difficult to have uh, the kind of boundaries and the kind of self-care and the kind of um, overall way of looking at it spiritually um, to maintain it. I ultimately wasn't able to do it for very much longer after my mom passed away, and I went to work for the San Francisco Homeless Outreach Team. So I'm not working specifically with end of life, but I, that is my own passion. So we are out on the street every day doing outreach with some of the highest risk, most vulnerable people in San Francisco. Um, Our goal is to link folks to services. There is a variety of, there's a spectrum of people that I work with, some that are deeply um, spiritual and see this work as a deeply spiritual endeavor and others that are just really want to help folks with homelessness, but don't necessarily look at it in that way. So it's challenging. We all get very sad and burnt out. And depending on what we do as practices throughout the day, that determines how long we stay with the work. I would think it would be all, Excuse me. I would think it would be almost impossible to do this work without some kind of spiritual perspective because of the magnitude yeah. of the suffering and the, 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 the constancy of it, if you will. Yeah, yeah. People have a variety of different ways to uh, manage it, but I would say that's, that that's pretty true for our team, that most of them have come to this work either through their own suffering, through addictions or experiencing homelessness themselves, uh, and through that portal of their own suffering, they have wanted to connect to other people's suffering in this way. And something about it feels very spiritual, whether they're talking about it in that way or not. But I know for me, those practices that I learn in your group are mandatory for me to continue the work. It's challenging and it's hard and it's hard on the heart. We want to do more than we can. There's, you know, like you said, there's 67 to 10,000 homeless folks in San Francisco at any given time, and 32 of us outreach workers that are trying to connect with them in ways that are useful to to those folks. What are you hearing? I'm hearing some noises of somebody in your house doing something. Okay. Okay. So that's okay. Uh, mm-hmm. In one of the interviews I did, somebody was walking all around the house dealing with a, a, a pet. So just car- oh, 
carrying the laptop as she was moving around. <laughs> okay. Well, I can maybe move to a different room if no, it's no, too no, loud. No, 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 that's fine. Okay. So uh, my, my recollection is that at times uh, it's, you say things like, I really love the practices you teach, but it's very hard to remember to do them. Yeah, I forget them every single time. <laughs> I don't remember until later. I'm like, yeah. oh, I should have remembered to, you know, include spaciousness in that really challenging moment. Right. Well, I remember the story by this teacher, Gurdjieff, where he was trying to remember and he couldn't remember. He tried saying mantras and tying a string around his finger and trying to do all kinds of things to remember. And he finally said what, that what got him to remember was the suffering itself. Yeah. You've told me that story and it really resonates with me. It's, it's the only real way to remember is like to be in it. So, yeah. so how does self-compassion play out here? I mean, clearly you're drawn to this work because you have a very open heart and you really care about your clients or whatever you call Are they called clients? Is yeah, that... we do call them clients actually, yeah. Okay, so you've, you've got homeless clients, some of them in much worse shape than others, but and some of them suffering a lot more than others. And your heart goes out to them, and it's frustrating because you don't have enough resources and things. But my sense of it is that it really depends on how much compassion you can have for yourself. That to the extent you're getting lost in, oh my God, this is just overwhelming, there, then you really can't be helping other people at a deeper level. So that, that somehow this need to keep coming back into your own body, into your own heart, and getting grounded and getting centered is essential to avoid total burnout. Yeah. Well, early on, right when I met you, I remember you telling me, I do have a very um, natural way with compassion. My heart is uh, open in a, in a kind of an organic and natural way. What I'm learning is how do you take this heart that's already open and practice things that allow you to have the boundaries that you need and the groundedness that you need. But one thing that you told me very early on is having compassion for all these other folks out there, while I exclude compassion for myself, isn't really compassion for anyone else either. Right. And that was a really, really eye-opening moment for me, recognizing that I can give all this love out, but if I'm not willing to take it into my own heart for myself, then it really doesn't it, it almost doesn't count. So I've really been working with that for the last couple of years through my work with you for sure. And it's really important out there because, um, because it's complicated. People are complicated out there. I don't often just connect with people and just have nothing but an open heart. It's more complicated. They, I want them to do different things. I want them to engage differently. I'm trying to help people that often don't know how to accept help. So it can, it can add to suffering if one's not also giving oneself a pathway to compassion. But I'm very new at that. As old as I am on this planet, I'm new at that concept. So yeah, it's essential. I, I mean, to me, there's not a lot of talk in, in spiritual life about having, in this traditional spiritual literature, about having a foundation for being compassionate. They just say, okay, just yeah, let, let's, just do, be that let, way. let's yeah. do compassion practice. Let's, let's do Tonglen. Let's, let's open your heart. Let's sing to God. And without having these, these more foundation practices in place of being grounded and being centered, 
then the heart's only going to remain open when it feels safe, when the, when the environment is being supportive. Right. And a lot of times the environment's not supportive. And if we don't have that autonomy and that sense of inner strength that comes from being willing to inhabit the lower chakras, the lower part of the body, dropping yeah. down rather than going up and try to figure it out, then it's going to be really difficult. I mean, I've got a PhD in math. And my training is to go up and figure it out, to keep going up. And it was so, so uh, profoundly difficult, so challenging, so painful to begin to trust that I didn't have to understand things, that this thing the Bible talks about, the peace that passes understanding. And uh, this thing of being lost in my emotions, being lost in my head, it, it, it's so hard to trust that there's a deeper wisdom than that because mm -hmm. each of us has created a, a character structure, personality that is perfectly designed to protect us from feeling that emptiness of a separate self. Yeah. Well, I can tell you also with our work, it's really not a huge challenge to open my heart to folks that are living on the street. It's really not that difficult. What's harder is... Uh, to the politicians and to the, you know, people that are controlling the money and the developers. And so in my practice with my work, that's one of the things that I do for myself. And I can tell you a story where one of the people that I supervise who is in a very unique piloted program where we pair up with the fire department. So one of our outreach workers goes out with the fire truck and tries to divert people from the, um, uh, the paramedics try to divert people from the emergency room using the emergency room as uh, primary care and getting them to the level of care that they need. And this is an amazing outreach worker. He's had an amazing life of his own and he has, his heart just flies open no matter how difficult the homeless person is, no matter how challenging they can be, how they don't show up for what they need to do. He just opens his heart, opens his heart, opens his heart. But when he's interfacing with, you know, some of the doctors at the hospitals or the security guards down at GA or the people at the detox, it just closes up. It's like, they should be doing better. They should know more. And so one of my practices with him is to say, you know, all of that really easy compassion that you have for this really challenging guy that's, you know, that you're working with. Yeah. Could you translate that over to some of these other providers? And it's been an amazing thing watching him try to figure that out. And also, that's something that I'm in a parallel process with him. That's what I'm trying to do in these moments that are not about opening the heart to the people that are suffering the most, but opening our hearts to folks that that are it's a little harder. It's a little bit more challenging who have a lot to do with how things go in our work. And probably I don't know if that makes sense. It makes complete sense. And I think the most challenging person is not even the doctor, but yourself. Always, always. And trying to find our pathway through. So to what, some of the things that I talk to with the outreach workers is, yeah, so the, the time when it's the hardest to open the heart and to, to breathe through that, that's, that's, your, that's your best entry point, you know. But it's hard. We forget all the time. We get caught up. It's very chaotic. It's challenging. It's politically charged. And if you don't have a practice that you just automatically fall into, you're just stuck out there as being a really limited human being with a tremendous amount of suffering. 
You know, I think this is such a fascinating time. It's right now, it's mid-October 2016, so there's going to be an election in three weeks. Mm. And there's these two magic words, Donald Trump, that you say those <laughs> words and people have one reaction. Well, there's a reaction one way or the other. Yeah. And most of the reactions are coming from a closed heart. Yeah. Either I want that or I hate that. And yeah. I really think that you can't love yourself until you can love Donald Trump. I mean, you can love a lot of yourself, but the place you don't love him is the place that you can't accept something in yourself. Yeah. And uh, you've maybe heard me tell the story that my brother, who died of pancreatic, pancreatic cancer a few years ago, was informed by his, uh, he was informed of his uh, diagnosis by his Kaiser oncologist in an after hours email. Mm. So he gets this email at 7 p.m. saying, you've got pancreatic cancer and it's outside of the pancreas, it's in your blood, we're putting you on palliative care. Yeah. And he calls me up and he's freaked out saying, does this mean I'm dying? And I tell that story to people and everybody feels so much compassion for my brother and they're really mad at the doctor. Yeah. But why is the doctor, why is the doctor not able to tell my brother? Because of his own fear, because of, sure. of to, to touch my brother in that moment to touch him deeply when my brother's going to be in so much pain uh, takes a certain kind of strength and stability that the doctor's never been trained in. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, my son now is in middle school and they don't give him any training in compassion or emotional intelligence or mm -hmm. being embodied. It's all reading, writing, and arithmetic. Sure, sure. The thing that they need the most for the longest. Yeah. Yeah, there's no school for it. And not everybody even knows that it's part of what we do. I mean, I sit in rooms with people all the time that they don't talk about their heart at all in the work that we do. There are people who don't think about it that way. But in my view, in my path, that's the only thing I want to talk about. Well, you know, so I'm I, a bit of an outsider at my work for that reason, I'm sure. Do you think people see you in that way, though? I mean, I, I would guess they really trust your heart. I don't know, actually. I think that, it, you know, Energy reads, and I think that when I'm really in the right space, yeah, I think it can be really comforting to folks. But I think for people who aren't willing to, you know, there are a lot of people who are in, that do this kind of work, they don't want to focus on themselves. They take the most chaotic population that they can find, and they just devote all of their time and energy to helping others. And they don't really understand that it's about themselves. There's a huge disconnect between you know, what I'm doing over there with that person and I'm totally over here neglecting myself and not even bridging the two. So I think there are many people that are drawn to this kind of traumatic work because they want to heal the trauma in themselves. Some of them do that consciously and some of them don't, you know. Right. And uh, it's really hard when you're with somebody who doesn't want to talk about their own pathway. They just want to help those people over there. And you can see th that disconnect is causing more suffering for, for themselves, for sure. But uh, that's out of my hands. It's not my path, you know. But I, any chance I can to say 
mm, these are pretty linked. <laughs> I will, you know. Sometimes it's not popular. Mayor Baba said that love is contagious. Those who haven't got to catch it from those who do. And, I mean, I really understand that you have all kinds of specific things you have to do and forms you have to fill out and protocols you have to pay attention to. But at the same time, I think much more important is is that heart connection there? Are you are you willing to have your heart open in this kind of mysterious, unknown place between you and another being? Yeah. And uh, the Dalai Lama says an interesting thing. He says that one of the, the qualities of compassion is the ability to equalize and switch yourself with somebody else. And I think a lot of people get into helping because it allows them to keep a distance from from suffering. Yeah. that they're back there helping. And uh, I'm beginning to change my notion of compassion from I'm having compassion for somebody to I'm having compassion with somebody. Yeah. That, yeah. You're, that you're there in the soup. You're there in the, in the emotional soup with somebody rather right. than you're out there to fix them or help them or something. And, right. that, and without the tools, though, you can get really flooded with that, the with rather than for. And I think that's why people don't, gravitate towards that because if you don't have the ability to know what you're doing with that being with then it's easy to get flooded so with the suffering what kind of tools do you use well my favorite tools are the ones you're teaching us right now around bringing, bringing the spaciousness that's a really really useful tool so I'm in a moment I'm with somebody they are suffering in unbelievable amounts and ways I'm open my heart opens to them I get flooded and I want a distance so it's all happening very quickly so bringing some space around that feeling of wanting to separate from the suffering and leaning into it of course what we talk about that but that spaciousness and having some boundaries I think which I'm learning more about allows me to be inside this boundary with this person, with their suffering, and we're okay. We're just there. Let me, and then later I'll leave and I'll start crying <laughs> or, you know, whatever. But, but in that you, moment, it's getting easier to just be with it. But maybe the crying later is not a, a problem or something that shouldn't be happening. Maybe that that's equally part of being present. I mean, being present doesn't mean... You're not sad. It doesn't mean yeah. that, that right now you can't cry when you think about what's happening to those people, to us, to them, you know. And so I think what Melanie's suggesting here is that for the longest time in these groups, we've been talking about this developmental practice where you get grounded, you get centered, you develop mindfulness, you start working with compassion. Compassion is the, the doorway from duality to non-duality. But there's another practice where you start at the end where you start with the realization that you are whole, that there is some, maybe some guidance into feeling that sense of being or presenceness or presence or God or love that's there in every moment. And you can be with that even when there is difficult content happening. So that, that instead of you starting to have some sense of a problem, instead of saying, how can I fix the problem? You go right to there's no problem or what, mm -hmm. what, what part of me th is really 
assuming there's a problem and go right from that to the sense of spaciousness because because spaciousness is one of the qualities of the awakened mind or the open heart and uh i mean i i kind of realized i got into a little bit of a lecture there when you were having a lot of feelings Mm. and uh well i just want to i think because what what i realized there dale the thing that's the hardest is when we're working with another human being and we start to feel flooded with our emotions and we assume that it's that person suffering, right? Instead of like we're in suffering together, mm-hmm. ours, theirs, the world's, you know, the universe's. And that's the hardest thing with my job. It's because we're not, there's not, a, we're not invited to be with our own suffering because here, you know, we have jobs and we have money to eat every day and we're living inside a house. So, our suffering can't be part of the picture. It's these other people are suffering and we're there to help them. So we get into our place with them. Our heart is open. We're sharing suffering. We're with suffering. We're with each other, with compassion. And then our own suffering is in there. And then there's no place for that. There's, there, there's no place for There's what? no place for that. There's no dialogue around that. We never go out and say, I'm going to go work with these homeless folks and be with our suffering together. That's what we're going to do. We're going to hang out with suffering with each other. And in, I'm not even sure if I'm making sense, but I, I can see the dilemma in the helping professions of how we get flooded. We shrink away from our own suffering because we think we're absorbing their suffering rather than we're just with suffering and we don't want to tolerate it very well. We don't have the tools to tolerate it and we don't have a discussion. There's no dialogue. We, in my field, we talk about self-care, burnout, vicarious trauma, But even that word vicarious trauma means that you're taking on the trauma of someone else. And and that, you know, that very well may may be. But on this level that we're talking about it, if you're just with suffering, it's the universe suffering. It's the suffering of all of us. It's one thing because we aren't separate. But then those terms don't make any sense. And then I'm really an outsider because I'm saying, yes, I I hang out with a homeless person and we we were with our suffering. (laughs) What do you mean you were with your suffering? Well, it was my suffering and their suffering, but really it's just one suffering. And they're going to say, no, you need to think about it as you have to help them. You can't be with their suffering and your suffering. That's not what we're paying you for. You have to go help them. So there's this already at the gate. Some of it has to be the secret internal thing that you do. Right. It's harder to talk about it. I have some outreach workers that are very open to these concepts of like, working on oneself and that really that it's the job isn't really what we're doing. We're just coming here as, as beings to try to evolve in some way. And this is the structure that we're doing it in happens to be the homeless outreach team. It could be anything. Sometimes I have some folks that really like talking about it in that way. It makes it a much richer dialogue and people, who need more from the work than just the satisfaction of getting someone into care, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. But then there's another level of it that, that I appreciate. And then I, that's, that's the only way that I can do it. Okay. But I would bet that even if you, if there are people that you're working with that you can't talk to about suffering with or the, the yeah. unity of beingness or whatever we're talking about here, that to the extent you're in that place, they're going to start feeling that. Sure. And that 
uh, I mean, in a way, like there's two levels of practice. There's the practice where Melanie's doing something, Dale's doing something, and we try to do it skillfully. And we've got practices to do the uh, various things. But then there's this absolute practice of just being open, being spacious, and people are attracted to that. Yeah. And some of them might be ready to start hearing about it. Some of them aren't. Mm -hmm. One of the hardest things I've learned in being around quote unquote dying people is to allow people to have their suffering Mm -hmm. and that maybe people need to have their suffering until they're ready to not have it and to try to force them to, okay, now it's time for you to change the way you're doing things. There's a better way to do things and I know what it is and here's what it is that that often just creates resistance. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it's like me loving Donald Trump isn't going to change Donald Trump. I mean, I think it's profoundly unlikely. I mean, yet, to the extent that I'm resisting him, that resistance creates some kind of karmic blowback in the universe mm-hmm. in some kind of way. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, just yesterday I was driving home. I was not far from home. And some guy cut me off in a really dangerous way. I had to slam on my brakes, and I missed getting in an accident by a few inches. And the guy was doing a completely selfish thing to try to squeeze into my lane so he could get around a guy who was trying to make a left-hand turn. And I got so mad for a minute. You know, I mean, I lost any sense of practice or anything, and yet... There was still a part of me that even though I was kind of lost in the duality, that there was still the kind of the spaciousness happening at the same time. A month ago, I had this operation, emergency hernia surgery, where I was actually screaming in pain. But as I was screaming, there was, I was, I was calm and open at the same time. And my sense of it is that people are drawn to that kind of balance, that kind of openness. I'm not saying mm-hmm. I'm always there. Sometimes I really get lost. I do. Yeah. But, but, uh, and I, you know, I have a big advantage over you that in running the Living Dying Project, we're advertising, we offer spiritual support. So the people that come to us are very strongly pre selected. Yeah. They're, yeah. The, they're the people who want spiritual help. You've got to deal with anybody who shows up or that are put in front of the you. encounter. Yeah. And at the same time, you've got to do it in within a certain kind of framework. But to me, the best practice in the 21st century now is have some inner contemplative practice combined with a really intimate relationship out there with the fragility of life, with deep suffering, with death itself, actually. In fact, you were telling me how you were interested in really the possibility of offering support for the dying homeless. Yeah, well, I am. that's my passion. And I, we have a lot of homeless folks that are, you know, hospice appropriate, palliative care appropriate, and they don't know it and no one else knows it. And no one thinks about getting them into that kind of philosophy, into that kind of care. So more and more, I'm having dialogues with people about, you know, the way that they're living and, um, and how it's, how they might want to die. You know, and it's it's hard. Not everybody can do it, uh, especially some of my folks that I've talked to about it that are chronic substance users and they have substance use disorders that are not, they may not resolve in this lifetime and they haven't lived their lives in a way that 
they've been very present. That's not really what the the goal of their lives were, was to be escaping, escaping. And so then asking them to be present for this last piece of their lives when they haven't really had any practice at all is really hard. But every once in a while you get someone who really understands it. And I'm trying to connect uh, connect people to the dialogue, to the philosophy. Like what does it mean to be awake at the end of one's life, you know? And um, even if you've never been awake for much of your life, you know, and a lot of people that have experienced this kind of homelessness and trauma and substance use disorders and mental illness, they haven't really uh, been present for their lives in the way that, you know, I would want them to. But anyway, this is something that's, you know, we're working, I'm working on it all the time. I have a really great, amazing medical team that I work with that is really open to having these conversations with folks. And we track homeless deaths. There's a tremendous amount of homeless deaths. People die alone, suffering um, on the street. It's, it's hard. It's, uh, it's not what we would want for folks. Sometimes that's how it goes. But I would guess that even those people who aren't ready to hear your sales pitch for a different way of dying Mm -hmm. that to the extent you can be there with an open heart and some kind of spaciousness that 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 affects somebody and as their as their consciousness leaving the body that that message is there to a certain extent that yeah i was just around somebody who wasn't really pushing away the fact that i'm really having a really hard time right now or wasn't getting all lost in it so that I mean, to me, there's three ways of dealing with suffering. You push it away, you get lost in it, or you have an open-hearted compassion for it. Mm. And, and that compassion is the, the gateway from all this dualistic living and complication to that spaciousness that we're talking about, that compassion can be spelled with a small C or capital C, and that it probably goes back and forth where I'm feeling compassion for you, I'm doing compassion, I want you to be suffering not so much and then at times you just slip into that place of being compassion mm. and that's a very powerful message for somebody yeah no doubt yeah never sales pitch for uh, end of life care <laughs> there's no sales pitch good enough for that but yeah, i think you're right i think it's just my i believe in that so much and i think i carry it with me and it it makes it easier for people to be receptive to that in their own hearts. So I really see you as a deeply heartfelt person yeah. who sometimes doesn't have a lot of inner support for your heart. Yeah. That, that you get uncentered, that you really get kind of thrown off balance by, by life because you are such a caring person. And uh, so I've been trying to get you to convince you that the work that needs to be done is you creating that foundation of you being centered, you mm. having this like strong rock solid oh, kind of place mm. where you're doing the martial art of being a social worker. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have no doubt that the, the heartfelt part's always going to be there. To me, it's very, I mean, it's almost, I don't know how to say this, but it's almost humiliating in a certain, or maybe embarrassing is a better word, that I've been meditating for almost 48 years now. I just added it up. And I still need to learn to drop out of my head down into the lower part of my body when something is really challenging. 
Uh, intellectualism is one of the most difficult spiritual diseases to heal. Mm. All. We, we trust there's this emotion, there's this thought, and I, I, I believe that. And can we start believing the, the, the true heart, the open heart, more than all the stuff that the mind is telling us? So how do we find that faith? How do we find that faith in the context of people are dying on the street? Mm. You know, I struggle with that. All I don't go up into my head very often, but I can get easily flooded in my heart. Right. So that's my analogy, and I don't, I don't know. I, I think one of the things that I've learned through my work with you also is this concept of, you know, I keep bringing it back to that spaciousness. So I get flooded, get really flooded, and the only thing that is working for me right now is to keep adding space around that feeling of just having a, a heart that's flooded, and I don't, I really have no idea what to do with it. It happens all the time. It always has. Um, you know, first couple decades of my life, it was just, I knew I was a heartfelt person in there, but I was, I had just, was very guarded. Once I began to think I would like to drop that guardedness, it's just been kind of a floodgate ever since. And I'm working with that, you know, but I don't know. No answers there. It's a practice for me. It scares me. I get scared sometimes. All the depth of feeling scares you? Uh-huh. Sure. It's not even so much the depth of the feelings. It's, it's how to be with that in the realm of the world where you know, I can't really... I've never thought that I could ever walk around the world just crying. <laughs> <laughs> I have some rules about that. <laughs> so I'll be in my work. It's, you know, it's an eight to 10 hour, 15 hour day sometimes. And, you know, what to do with that stuff. You know, it's choke. I just, I'm going to choke on that, you know. So, uh, yeah, that's just the way it works for me. So. My struggle is never going up into my head. There's nothing up there for me at all. I don't trust anything up there. But my heart just can easily be, um, yeah, flooded. So let me say something that, that I'm trying to understand myself. And I mean, to me, the heart is the depth of the, the mind and the, the mind is the surface of the heart. Mm. So that maybe you don't have this intellectual thing where I got the training to analyze, categorize, and understand. But there's a deeper level of the mind that you're calling the heart where there are all these feelings, but they're in the body just like the thoughts are in the body. It's all mm -hmm. all of this one thing. And uh, what I'm finding more and more is that it's not about improving or changing those things, but allowing yourself to have this flood of feelings and not feeling it has to be different than that, not judging yourself, not saying I've got to fix that, mm -hmm. that it's okay to be flooded by these feelings and learning to be flooded by feelings and just be like nakedly, directly, vividly in touch with that stuff and mm -hmm. not lose your seat on, on this horse of life that we're, that's bucking and jumping all over the place. Yeah. 
so that so so that that flooding isn't going to go away. That those intense emotions right. that 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 that's who Melanie is. That's your beauty. Yeah. The the Sufis have the saying: your your greatest weakness is but a warping of your greatest strength. And I think that that's place mm. for you that you feel things so deeply that it makes it really difficult. But at the same time, that's not something to fix. It's something to own. It's something to 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 honor. Something to celebrate. Yeah. Some days are easier than others to celebrate that. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hear what you're saying. And I think that is, uh, you know, for something so profound and so helpful to realize that there is no problem. There are no problems. It's just this is what it is. It is kind of amazing going back to what you were saying. Like, why aren't we learn? Why didn't we learn this in kindergarten? You know, it just seems like such a would have been a very useful thing to know that there are no problems, not a problem. You be with it, you add some space to it and you see what you can what your next step might be. But this problem thing is very cumbersome. And, you know, getting rid of that is. um, Yeah, every moment that I'm not thinking everything is a problem, I feel like I've won the lottery. But, you know. Sometimes things do feel problematic. Yeah. And I'm hoping to do this work for another decade or so, you know, actively and intensely and long hours. And I do need to figure out, um, you know, in any given moment how to be with it and not be exhausted because it can be tiring. And then also that the other the things that the the chi that I need for the other parts of my life that make me happy um, sometimes take a back seat. You know, I'll work really hard. I'm good at it. I, I actually am happy to be there. And then when I leave, I, there's just nothing left. So I'm working with that. How to make sense out of that? What feels like two different states? But I know that it's not. But I. Um, this week I'm having a particularly good week, but you know, you look pretty happy to, today. Yeah, I'm really happy today. I went to yoga, you know, if I get to yoga, that makes it good. You know, as long as I'm doing something for me that helps me replenish what I need to go do that, it all seems to work out, but sometimes it doesn't work that way. And that's my challenge. And I think that's a challenge of many people who do this kind of work that's relentless and ever present and um yeah so i love this thomas merton quote where he says love and prayer are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart turns to stone yeah so that the it's great you're having a great week it's great you feel good today because of yoga but in that moment Mm -hmm. where (laughs) that other thing that that other thing happens yeah that's the that's the chance to open the heart in a way you never have before Yeah. Well, when I worked at the hospital, after being in the group for maybe about a year, I remember because I forget how to use stuff in the moment, I'd be having a particularly joyful and abundant and easy day, light day. And I'd go in and go like, okay, I can't wait to some really awful thing happens. I can practice it right now. You know, like almost kind of looking forward to those times when I don't feel light or open and grounded and centered so that I can remember, you know, this state of that I'm in now and then these other states. And that's another practice that you have been have introduced to us recently that's been really helpful, like holding these 
if I'm in this one place holding the opposite. And I've actually brought that to the supervision group to and had the outreach workers practice that a little bit. And it's been really a useful tool when I remember it. This, this sort of, this is joy and this is not joy and seeing how like actually you can have them both at the same time. It's all that yeah. pops you into beyond any duality. That's right. That's that's a really magical little trick for me. I like that a lot. That yeah. works really well with me. I seem to be able to remember that better than others. Yeah. Thank you so much, Melanie. Yep. Sure. So, okay. any final words of love, wisdom you'd like to say? Not so much, you know, I'm happy to be here. And, um, you know, I took a little uh, break from the meditation group and I am really happy to be back in that group, Healing with the Edge. I think it reminds me of the things that that are really hard for me to remember. I'm glad you love us so close to the surface. It really, it really touches me. Let me just give a little plug here before we close that uh, there is a Living Dying Project website. And on there we have uh, a workshop, an online workshop that explores these ideas that Melanie and I have been talking about uh, that you can sign up for. That's got some live online streaming part of it. And... uh, I'd like to thank you again. I wish I could be there to hold you right now to give you a a great big hug. That'd be nice. But it sounds like there's somebody in the other room there uh, (laughs) bouncing around who's going to be able to hug you. He's in charge of the hugs, yeah. When we're done here. Yep, yep, that sounds good. So take care, and I'm going to say goodbye, and thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Bye-bye. Thanks, Dale. Bye.